Good morning, church. My name is Craig Jarvis. I am the lead pastor at Village Church East, which is not far from here. And they are meeting uh, in about a half hour. We start our service uh, over, actually in an hour, we start our service over there. Um, so I just want to say thank you for those of you that keep us on your prayer list. We love what God is doing over there. You should know this. This morning we have another baptism class. We've got uh, probably five or six people in there that are exploring baptism. Uh, and if you've never seen a baptism in a public pool, uh, you should mark June 2nd on your calendar because we, uh, we dunk people as others are doing laps behind us. It is the most incredible experience ever. Uh, we're at Fountain View Community Center, and we enjoy uh, our time over there. Michael is over there this morning, and I'm here this morning, so uh, I get to uh, create some havoc for him to fix when he gets back. We've been talking about uh, Jacob, and I love going through the story of Jacob uh, with Michael every time we uh, dig through more of what uh, we can see in this passage of Scripture. Jacob is an interesting character. He has grappled for a foothold in life his entire life, Uh, never used to giving God his way, never used to allowing God to work in his time. Uh, Waiting on the Lord is his least favorite verse in Scripture. Uh, He's always worked to get what he thinks he deserves when he deserves it. And I know you've been walking through this with with, uh, Michael so far, and so I would like to start off with a little quiz. I'd like to find out how good you've been learning the book of Genesis. Um, And so we're going to do a little quiz this morning, all right? You like that? All right, good. Even if you don't, we're still going to do it. So here's a review of the Genesis uh, story so far. So here we go. Who am I talking about? Number one, this is the most important day in this man's life. Don't say it out loud yet. I'm going to give you a couple of clues here. This is the culmination and the anticipation of years and years of waiting for this singular climactic moment. He's waited his whole life to receive one huge gift. All right? Number two, a plot was formulated in order to deceive and it was constructed by a parent and their child. All right, getting clear? Number three, a fraud was played out covering, uh, covering intimate details in order to deceive. These intimate details would have been disguises that were worn, smells that, we, that uh, would deceive somebody else so that they could rip somebody off. All right, number four, a deception was constructed around a feast of food and drink. Food and drink was used to dull the senses, kind of put the other person at ease so that something could be stolen from them. And five, one sibling would pretend to be the other sibling in order to seal the deception. All right, here are your choices. Ready? Is this one, Abraham, two, Isaac, three, Jacob, or four, Esau? Who are we describing? Aha, you think you are. It's interesting, in Genesis chapter 25, this would definitely be talking about Esau. But welcome to Genesis chapter 29. You think you've heard this story before, you're about to hear it again this morning, but it doesn't happen to Esau. You are going to be so surprised. It actually happens to Jacob. And it happens almost identically the same way that he ripped off his father and ripped off Esau to steal the birthright and the blessing. What goes around church uh, comes around. 
Welcome to Genesis 29. Jacob is about to meet somebody a lot like him, and his name is Laban. Have you ever heard of Laban before? Laban's the kind of kid you really want to brag about. He's just spectacular, very upstanding individual. Actually, Laban is a brother to Rebekah, and Rebekah is Jacob's mom. So Laban is a shady character, a grappler just like Jacob, always trying to get ahead and always trying to uh, get a leg up on somebody else. And Jacob is about to learn a lesson in the school of hard knocks. Now, before we start, here's what kind of I want to sit on this morning, this question. I'm curious to know, how many of you have ever met somebody that just never seems to learn their lesson? <laughs> Does that... That sounds like some people you know. I thought it was just people I know. Maybe we know the same people, but they never seem to learn their lesson. They, and so it's like, it's like God gives them opportunities to learn. God shows them ways that they're at default, and yet they never seem to change. They never seem to learn. They run back to the same old, same old. I think this has been happening for a while because there's a passage in Scripture that says it's the dog that returns to his vomit. It's kind of the default of some people to never learn their lesson. Now, I don't know, but I want to maybe say that might be even somebody in here this morning. So, Jacob's on the run. He's in the wilderness, sleeping on the ground. God visits him. God gives him this vision of a ladder with angels going up and down, and God is standing at the top. And then, God reiterates the promise of Abraham and says, this promise is for you, Jacob. Now, that blows us all away. Because Jacob should not deserve this kind of grace. And yet God in his good providence and his perfect will has chosen Jacob, the, young, the younger, to rule over the elder, Esau. Now after this, you'd think that Jacob would go away from there and you'd think to yourself, hey, if I had a vision of God where I had just really dropped the ball, I'm on the run for my life, I've got nothing but the clothes on my back, I'm sleeping on the ground, and then God comes to visit and says, don't worry, wherever you go, I'll go with you. First time, by the way, that phrase is ever used in Scripture, it's given to Jacob. Wherever you go, I will go with you. And then Jacob gets up, and you'd think to yourself, he would get up a changed man, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think to yourself, well, that, if I had that kind of a moment with God, I'd, I'd confess, I'd change what I was doing, and I'd, I'd make myself right with God, get rid of some of those old habits. But the fact of the matter is, church, we have many moments with God. And sometimes it takes a lot of moments with God to get us to change, right? For Jacob, it was definitely the same way. Some people just won't change, no matter how many moments they have with God, so they have to go through terrible Hardships, And I have to tell you, this story in Genesis that we're going to go through this morning is one of the most heart-wrenching stories in Scripture. I hope to build it for you a little bit this morning. Jacob gets up, he goes to Haran where his, mother, his mother's brother lives, Laban. He's hoping to find a means to a livelihood. He has no idea where he's going, he just goes to family. He's looking for Laban. He has no food. He has, no, he, has no, he has nothing but the clothes on his back. So he's hurrying to try and find his mother's brother. He makes his way to a well because he knows that eventually the sheep that his, bro, his uncle have would need to be watered. 
So he goes to Haran, and he strikes up a conversation with some of the shepherds there in Genesis chapter 29. He asks them if they know a guy named Laban. It's like people asking me, hey, you're from Canada. Do you know Jim? It happens. Haran is a small town. So so he asks them, do you know Laban? And they do. And they said, look, here comes his youngest daughter now with the sheep. And she's on her way to water her sheep. Here we go in verse 10. Let's pick up Genesis 29, verse 10. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone away from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Get it? It's his mother's brother. Verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Why? Because he's got the key to the lock. He's got the blessing and the birthright of one of the richest people on the planet at this time, Abraham. Stolen it, but he's got it. But he has no way to get it because everybody in Abraham's family want to kill him. So he's on the run. What he has to do is he has to have children to guarantee them the inheritance and also to guarantee them the promise of God that they would eventually grow to outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the earth. What we would know later as the Jewish family, the Israelite family. Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. I think for Jacob, this was more than just a greed. Now, typically in the Middle East, you would kiss somebody, but I think at this point, Jacob is smitten. Rachel is severely younger than he is. He's 70 plus years old at this point. And so like every 70-year-old man who wants to impress a girl, he does what 70-year-old men do. He shows off his muscles. He moves the stone from the well. This stone would have been incredibly heavy, would have taken several shepherds to move it. But Jacob does it on his own, always looking over his shoulder to see if the girl is watching. This is actually the first love story recorded in the Bible. Love stories include Ruth and Boaz, Solomon and his wife from Song of Solomon. There are several love stories that occur in the Bible, but they're all after this. And the only ones that we have where two people get married and begin their families have been arranged. All the way back from Adam and Eve. Who arranged that one? All of them have been arranged. Even Jacob's mom was arranged by Abraham's servant. And so this is the first story where a man sees a woman and is smitten. Love at first sight. We're not told why he's attracted to her. Maybe it's her hard work ethic. Maybe it's the fact that she's the combination to the lock. Maybe she's pretty, though we don't know this yet. But this seems to be a love that Jacob grabs and lasts his entire life. So I think it was more than the fact he saw her as a combination to the birthright log. This guy loved Rachel like few people in Scripture. In fact, when he gives blessings to his own children, Joseph and Benjamin, he, like a typical dad, like his dad did with him, calls them to his bedside and blesses them. And in the middle of the blessing, he stops and goes on the story about how much he misses his wife, Rachel, who died in childbirth when Benjamin was born. So why did Jacob weep out loud? I think he's starting to see the promises of God in real time. And, by the way, she was beautiful. 
We, we find this later on. It's like a blind date moment, you know? Anybody ever been on a blind date? You go to the restaurant to meet and you're going, please God, please God, please God, please God. And then she walks in and it's go, phew, all right. She's a looker. Jacob goes from losing everything to getting everything. And the writer is helping us as the reader understand Jacob's mind. He goes from high to low and now he's back up on top. He thinks he's won the lottery. And let's find out if he does. Verse 12. Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father, whose name is Laban. Very good. After 70 years, he found his soul mate. She had the right pedigree. She was perfect age to bear children. She was a beautiful girl. She was a hard worker. She's watching the sheep. Everything he could want in a woman, he's found in her. And he's waited 70 years. Now, Esau's been married 40 years. He's got, a, he's got a family and kids of his own. But Jacob doesn't have anybody. He literally has been a mama's boy for 70 plus years. Now he's out on his own and he's thinking to himself, God's promise is coming true. My wife has just approached. She's everything I could hope for. He weeps aloud. No more having to be alone and no more having to run. Verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. Let's talk about, a little bit about Laban. Laban was always up to something. This is not the first time we've heard about Laban. Way back, about 80 years earlier, Abraham sends his servant to find a, a wife for Isaac, his son. All right, Jacob is Isaac's son. Abraham has to find somebody for Isaac. So he sends that servant to Laban's family. He goes over there and he finds the perfect bride for Isaac. And her name was Rebekah, Laban's brother. When he saw her, she was perfect. The Bible goes to incredible lengths to tell us how amazing Rebekah was. She was perfect. She had the right pedigree. She was a beautiful girl. She was from the family of Abraham. Everything Abraham had hoped for his son. She even went out of her way to water all of the horses for everybody that was around the well. She was just a servant, this Rebecca. The servant immediately at that point puts bracelets on her hands and asks her to come and marry Isaac. So now Rebecca is a young girl approached by a stranger who now comes on behalf of his master and says, I'd like for you to come back and marry my master's son. Here's gold. Here's more gold. Here's more gold. Put these bracelets on. Put the necklace on. This is all for you. Things are going well until Laban shows up. Want to see what happens? This is way back in Genesis 24. This is about 80 years earlier. Verse 29, Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. And as soon as he saw what church? The ring and the what? And the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister. This man was talking to me. He went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why are you standing outside? For I have prepared a house and a place for the camels. Laban was an opportunist. This is 80 years old, or 80 years earlier. Laban hears Abraham's relatives now. 80 years later, Abraham's relatives are back in town. 
So how do you think Laban feels about Jacob being hanging around the well now related to Abraham's descendants? Who's got all of the money? Abraham does. Who wants all the money? Laban does. So Laban runs to the site to be among the riffraff, probably the first time he ever hung out with workers. Laban greets Jacob, and probably the whole time he's hugging him and kissing him, he's looking around for the sacks of gold, because he has no idea Jacob's on the lamb. Laban has no idea, all he has is a clothes on his back, until the words Laban, or, or Jacob told Laban all these things. We're not told how much information Jacob shared, but whatever information Jacob shared, he had to include the fact that he was on the run. Any way you slice it, Jacob was not coming off well. But he had a plan to get Rachel, and so Laban had to know at this point in time, Jacob was here, Jacob was on the run, Jacob was related to Abraham and was the rightful heir at this point to all the riches, so Laban had Jacob right where he wanted him. Can you describe the character of Jacob in one word at this point? What would you say? Character of Jacob. I'm sorry, character of Laban. Did I say Jacob? Sorry. Character of Laban. Character of Laban. What do you think of him so far? Greedy? Shyster? Yeah. I actually tried to write shyster in and I couldn't spell it right, so I just (laughs) wrote something completely different. Verse 14. Laban said to him, Surely you are bone, bone, listen to this, surely you are my bone and my flesh. Laban, what a great guy. And he stayed with him a month. Why would Laban have asked Jacob to stay with him a month? Here's why. You are required to offer hospitality to a traveler, but it does not have to exceed three days. After the fourth day, the traveler has to tell you everything about himself. Otherwise, he's out. You can keep him if you want, otherwise he's out. And then it's at your discretion, way back here in this time, if you want to keep him and he'd have to work for his livelihood. So that's how you treat travelers in his day. Laban says, forget all that. I would like for you to stay with me for one whole month. What do you think about that? Jacob's got nowhere to go. Laban's got him wrapped around his finger. So Laban brings Jacob back to the house. And the other thing Laban probably notices is how Jacob is looking at his daughter. Oh, man. I can get in with the rich guy. And he wants to get rid of his daughters. No offense in our culture today, but daughters are a means for an inheritance, and he's looking at this as the best inheritance he could possibly get. Verse 15, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Jacob has nothing. The only thing that Jacob has is time. So Jacob says, I will stay with you and I will work with you if you provide me with a livelihood I will work for you and give you my time and my energy. Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now you need to understand something. When the Bible says Leah's eyes were weak, it doesn't mean that her eyes were weak. We're not quite sure what it means, but it's a turn of phrase. Like saying, uh, you're, you're not playing with a full deck, or you're one fry short of a happy meal. Like, it's that kind of a phrase. You've heard that before, right? Not you, but the people you live with. 
Leah's eyes were weak simply means like she might have been sickly, she might have had a skin condition, we're just not sure. One commentator said maybe it means that her eyes weren't as dark as the eyes of the Middle Eastern girls typically, and you'd want really dark eyes to be attractive. It's just hard to know what's going on. But her eyes were weak means that there was some cultural flaw that made her not get married. She's the older, Rachel's the younger, Leah is not married yet. And always the older gets married before the younger in this day. So this description comparing Leah to her sister was simply meant for us to know, the reader, that Rachel outshone her sister in many ways. Let's read on. Verse 18. Here's where it gets bad. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Rachel was very young and needed to grow up before she got married. So Jacob is saying, listen, I got time. I'll wait seven years. I'll work for you. We'll wait for her to grow up, and then I'll marry her. Laban's response is, eh, case arrestera, better she go to you than any other guy. What a great dad. Typically, a dowry for a daughter would be 50 shekels. This is what you would purchase the daughter for. Typical wage for a worker is one shekel a month. Jacob's offer equals 84 shekels for Rachel's hand in marriage. Verse 20. So Jacob served for seven years for Rachel. Now look at this, church. This is amazing. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Your husband says that to you all the time, doesn't he? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now, keep in mind, Jacob's probably never held a job in his entire life, right? Seventy years, he's been working for his family. He never got a wage his entire life. His first job he has, Shazam, is the best job of his entire life. He didn't care because he always kept his eye on the goal, and the goal was Rachel. In seven years, I get Rachel, and in the meantime, I get to hang around Rachel, all seven years. Rachel was the end game. She was, the, she was the, the final thing of his life that would put the final puzzle piece in place. Every hope, every dream, every promise, every new start was wrapped up in Rachel. And the amazing thing was Rachel loved him back. It was a perfect scenario. Jacob focuses everything he has on Rachel and he begins to make plans for them both. I can just imagine, you know, he'd work hard all day in the field, which is what Jacob did. He always made a lot of money. He was good at what he did. And he'd come home at night, and then he'd sit down, and he'd think about Rachel and his future. And he'd probably write some things down and probably dream in his head of how it would be. And another day would go by, and another day would go by, and seven years went like that. Let me ask you a question. If you dreamed like that about your future and had everything taken away in a heartbeat, how would you feel? Because that's exactly what happened to Jacob. Look in verse 21. Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go in to her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. Seven years was up. Between verse 20 and 21, seven years passed. Jacob loves the seven years. 
And now the final moment happens. And in this day, it would be a huge moment. There'd be a feast that would last for a week. Neighbors wouldn't be invited over. There would be procession to and from the bride's house. There would be a reading of the marriage contract. There'd be a large feast with friends and neighbors. The first day ended with the groom wrapping his cloak around the bride, who would be a seal of his love for her. And then she was veiled throughout the rest of the ceremony. The groom would take the bride back to the marriage room. Feasting and celebration would continue for a whole week. It was a big deal. And Jacob knew it and dreamed of it for seven years. Verse 23. But in the evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zipla to his daughter Leah to be her servant. In other words, church, when the week was up, Jacob was so disoriented that in the middle of the night, when the bride was brought, he doesn't realize that it's Leah and not Rachel. Laban pulls a fast one on Jacob. Laban, Jacob, Jacob. He wakes up in the morning and he sees Leah. Look how the Bible puts it. By the way, she would have been veiled. I mean, the incredible lengths that Laban would have had to go. She would have had to smell like Rachel. She would have had to have been veiled. She would have been wearing Rachel's dress. Verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah, exclamation point. And Jacob said to Laban, why have you done this to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Irony much? In In the Hebrew, you know what it actually says? And in the morning, behold, Leah. No mincing of the words. She would have been brought back to Jacob in the dark. She would have pretended to be Rachel. She would have Rachel's per- perfume on. Jacob gets Jacob. The same thing happens to him that he did to his parents, almost to the same, in the same way. Look at it. Jacob got his father's sense dulled with food and drink. Jacob's senses were dulled by Laban after a week of parting. Jacob stole something of great value on the most important day of Isaac's and Esau's life. Laban stole Jacob's virginity, promising, promised to his uh, real wife that he wanted, Rachel. Jacob was given what wasn't his to have. The oldest should have the birthright and the blessing. As the oldest, Leah should have had the rights to marry first. Jacob disguised himself as Esau to pull it off. Leah was described as, as Rachel to pull it off. The greatest deceivers come from the same family. Who's Laban's sister? Rebecca. Who got Jacob to deceive his, his dad? <coughs> Rebecca. Fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. His response is classic. It's classic. He says to Laban, why have you deceived me? And I can imagine Re- Rebecca's brother, who grew up in the famed family, de- family of deceivers, would have looked at Jacob and said, dude, that's what family does. <laughs> do you know what kind of family you married into? That's what we do. Now, I need to ask you, take a poll. How many of you feel sorry for Jacob? Not too many. How many of you think Jacob is getting what he deserves? Oh, you're, you're a hard crowd. <laughs> Seven years of his life for nothing. He would never love Leah like Rachel. You're about to enter into the second part of the most heartbreaking scene in Genesis. Next week. Come back next week. 
It gets worse. Verse 26. Laban said, It is not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. How's that for a knife in your back? Laban, the deceiver, is lecturing Jacob, the deceiver, on what is meant to be proper in his culture. Right after ripping him off, Laban lectures Jacob. (laughs) I imagine Jacob's probably sitting there fuming listening to this. Because he knows, tongue-in-cheek, he's talking about him. Jacob didn't respect the rights of his firstborn brother. For Jacob, the end justifies the means. So Laban would say to Jacob, Hey, dude, remember, the end justifies the means. Jacob, he's saying, what goes around comes around. And so he said, listen, if you want the one you really love, how about this? Give me another seven years. Verse 27. One deal is made by one cheater to another. Complete the week of this one, Laban said, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Belia to his daughter to be her servant. So he stays another seven years and he finally gets Rachel. Verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved. Church, would you say this with me because this is the problem. Would you say this? And he loved Rachel more than Leah. Here's the irony. Jacob hated the fact that his father loved Esau more than him. And now he's doing the same thing. Jacob finally does have more children with Leah than Rachel. Actually, Rachel is barren for a long, long time. And that's one reason. Um, so, So Leah is always working for Jacob's affection. But Jacob does this loving one person more than another in your family for a long time. In fact, the child that Jacob loved the most, his name was Joseph. How in the world do you know that? Because he treated Joseph far better than he treated the rest of the losers, right? And you know why? Because one reason, they all came from Leah. Joseph came from his beloved wife. So he gives them the coat of many colors, and we'll get into that. God's plan is being compiled in the middle of craziness. Leah and her maid Zilpah had eight of the twelve kids that would be the twelve tribes of Israel. And the divine plan simply cannot be thwarted. God knows each one and has a plan for each one of their lives. So what? Let's talk about so what. Number one, God allows us to see crazy to keep us from walking in crazy ways. You ever think about that? You ever watch reality shows? Not that I recommend it, but you will find crazy on reality shows. And the thing that I think to myself every time I watch a reality show is, where do they find these people? Because I know crazy people, but not like that. Crazy draws crazy. This is why the Bible is so honest, by the way, about the foibles and the lives of the people in Scripture. Adam and Eve rebelled. Noah got drunk. David committed adultery and murder. Peter denied Jesus. You can read about all their foibles. And the reason why we can read about all the foibles is we are supposed to understand God can use anybody. So if you feel like your life or your family is crazy, God can use you and your family. God has a plan for you and your family. If you're here, God has a plan for you. This is the principle of Scripture. Crazy people, though, 
do what crazy people do. There's a phrase in Scripture that goes like this, God gave them over. You'll read about it lots and lots of times. In the book of Judges, it's on every page. It's when God's people are brought back to a place of fellowship with Him, but rebel again, not learning their lesson, and so God gives them over. He lets them go crazy. Crazy births crazy. And so they end up being just doing these crazy things. And you can read through the book of Judges and you think to yourself, these people are crazy. And you'd be right. Because God gives them over. There's another passage where this phrase is used that, sh- that makes me very fearful. And that's in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 says that everybody knows there's a God, a God who blesses them, who graces them, who reaches out to them, who gives them love and, and gives them uh, visions of himself in creation around them so that everybody knows, hey, we're not here by mistake. Life is too complex to be birthed of some meteorite a billion years ago. There's something about life that points us to God. But the minute we turn our back on that truth, we, go, we get a little crazy. And we come up with crazy different ideas about where life began and about who we are and monkeys to humans and all of those things. That is not the story of Scripture. Crazy births crazy. And then we begin to think, that's eh, normal. That's, that's really normal. And you will find this phrase, God gave them over, in Romans chapter 1. Because the further you walk away from God, the more He will give you over. And you'll come up with all kinds of fantasies about why life happens or good things happen or bad things happen. But if you kill God, you enter the world of crazy. When you turn your back on God's way of how life is meant to faction, you'll start down a road that affects you and affects those around you. So watch out who you hang with. They might actually be a mirror of your own crazy. Look in Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. There is a, there is a, a, um, a progression here. You walk with those that you, you kind of want to hear from. But when you stand and you stop, you want to hear a lot more from them. But then when you sit down at a table and start eating, you want to hear a lot more from them. When you do that to people that are on the crazy side of things or God is dead kind of things, you begin to look a lot like the people you hang out with. But if your delight is in the law of the Lord, your way will be blessed. By the way, if you've never memorized uh, Psalm chapter 1, it's a great, great one to memorize. I wonder, this, this is interesting, I wonder, when they talked about what to do with Jacob after he ripped off the family, I wonder what their response was. Rebecca said to Jacob, you should go to Laban, because in her heart she thinks you'll be protected. Isaac probably said, yeah, yeah, after what Jacob did, let's send him to Laban. Yeah, let's see what Laban does to Jacob. Let's put him in the school of hard knocks because Isaac knew Laban. He probably thought you'll get a taste of your own medicine, but God allows him to go. And God allows him to go through this for providential purposes. God had a moment with Jacob in the wilderness where he told him he would never leave him, but Jacob needs to change. And he doesn't. The only way Jacob would know how rotten his heart was was to hang out with somebody like Laban. Jacob got to walk with, stand with, and sit with somebody just like him. 
Yet he still doesn't learn his lesson. And so, church, I would say to you, what does it take to change you? What does it take to change me? How many moments have I had with God where I go, thank you for that lesson, moving on. Sometimes life just stinks. But when life stinks and you have something that's taken away from you that is rightfully yours, or you've had your rights ripped away from you that you think you deserve, how did you respond? By the way, this happens all the time. You're not the only one this happens to. Sometimes it's just unfair straight up. Sometimes you just have to take it because you don't have any other choice. Sometimes you can get justice involved and make sure that your rights are carried through on. But church, I would always say, watch your response carefully. Because most of the time, God would not let you go through whatever you're going through unless he had a lesson tailor-made for you. No matter how unfair it is, wherever God has you right now, there's something there for you to learn. God doesn't do anything by mistake. He has a plan for everything. And the end product is not our comfort, but it's to make us more like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 8, we are afflicted in every way, Paul says, but not crushed. The Apostle Paul writing here to the church at Corinth, persecuted for the gospel. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Church, everything you go through, no matter how unfair it seems, is to make you more like Jesus. And the worst way you can respond is not to learn the lesson. It's to move on and skip it and miss what God has for you. So number two, don't mistake your encounter with the grace of God for reconciliation. God's grace is never meant to remove our responsibility. We are meant to do regular heart checks. Every one of us, pastors included, are meant to do regular heart checks. Jacob was given the Abrahamic blessing by God, but God told, and God told Jacob that he belonged to him, he would never leave him, but that was not permission for Jacob to keep being Jacob. That was an appeal for Jacob to understand he needed to change. But Jacob mistaked the grace of God for a fix, and he didn't do a heart check like he needed to do. So church, if God is injecting your life with blessings and grace, learn the life lessons he has for you quickly. All of these things happened to Jacob so that he would change, and he missed it. God's intentional moments interceding in my life are meant to make me different so that I make lasting changes. Jacob doesn't change. Jacob doesn't change. Now he's going to hold a grudge against Laban that comes out in some pretty nasty ways. Uh, even involves painting of sheep. It's pretty bad, so you, you'll enjoy that. God is always after a change of heart. So I leave you with this verse. This is a great verse. Galatians 6, verse 7. Church, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, church, that will he, what? Also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. This is the principle of sowing and reaping. If you reap to the flesh, you're going to sow from the flesh. If you reap to bad things, you're going to sow bad things. If you don't learn your lesson and you keep doing the same thing that you're doing, you're going to get the same results. It is the definition of crazy, right? 
to do the same things and expect different results. Jacob was crazy. He didn't change what needs to change. And he thought his moment with God was enough for God saying to Jacob, yeah, I'll take you just like you are. Some things that are against God's best are meant to be removed from our lives. But thank God this is not where the principle of sowing and reaping ends. Look at the rest of the verse. But to the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Church, so let us not grow weary of what? Doing good. Where do you find out how to do good? God's Word. He's made it pretty clear. Don't grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will what, church? We will reap if we do not give up, and that's a challenge. Because you live among a group of people that never give up on crazy. And you have to keep up on the image of Christ. You have to reap what you sow. You have to sow and not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Church, don't get weary of sowing what is right. Wait on the Lord. Continue to be surrendered to what God has for you. And you won't believe what he can do with that kind of a life. Let's pray. So God, we come to the end of our look at Jacob this morning and realize to ourselves that although this story is thousands of years old, the principle runs like a thread through history. Help us, Father, to understand how you want us to change. Help us understand those moments when you visit us are meant to make us into the image of your Son. Help us understand that when we make those changes in our lives, it is not for the purpose of just getting a better life, but it's a purpose. It's for the purpose of exhibiting Christ in a world that desperately needs to know what crazy, how crazy can be solved. Thank you for including all of these difficult stories. The foibles of our fathers from the past. Help us to learn from them. Help us to learn from their example and help us to learn from the truth that you have put into your word. And help us always to put it above us as the authority and never subject to our whims. Thank you for loving us the way you do and never letting us go. Thank you that the truth you gave to Jacob is as true as it is uh, to him as it is to us today. That you will never leave us and you'll never forsake us. May we live lives that are pleasing to you. And may we treat one another with respect and love always. When challenges come our way, may we be introspective first humbling ourselves before a God that would take his time to teach us a lesson. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come to our moment of communion. The reason that we do communion each Sunday is because we want to make sure that the gospel has been clearly presented, especially if you're somebody that has never heard the gospel before. Maybe you've never heard that God loves you. Maybe the God that's been contrived for you is a God that, with a baseball bat chasing you around to try and make your life miserable until you become good enough to get to heaven. That is never the God of Scripture. That is why God visits Jacob in the middle of his rebellion. God did the same for us. The gospel is about the completed story of God. You don't have to add to it. You don't have to, you don't have to try to be good enough to add your DNA to it. The gospel is the gospel, and that is simply this. Jesus loves us, loves you. 
Jesus created this world because this is his evidence that he loves you. God has given you life and rained blessings on your life, no matter where you are today. God has given you blessings in life all the way along, and he has pursued you. And the reason he has is because he wants you to know there's a way out of your sin. The sin that easily binds you easily binds me. And we need help to take the chains off. So God's story, the gospel, is that Jesus came from heaven, the only Son of God, that he lived a perfect life that I couldn't and you couldn't, so that he could shed his blood to do away with my sins. Jesus became who I am in my sin so that I could become who he is in his righteousness. That is the story of the gospel. So if you're here this morning and think to yourself, I just can't, I can't be good enough, you sit among a group of people that would voice the same thing. We can't be good enough, but Jesus was. And to prove that he accomplished the task, he died on the cross and then rose from the dead. What does that demonstrate? Simply this, he's the ultimate victor. Sin can't keep him in the grave. And because of that, it can keep us in the grave either. That is the story of the gospel. And so I would say to you, as I would say to Jacob maybe so long ago, stop trying to get ahead. Stop trying to add to God's story. God has a story. Let it play out in your life. Surrender to him. Follow him. Put your knee on the ground at the foot of the cross and claim that he has the authority over your life. And when you do that, shazam, life will start to make sense in some pretty amazing ways. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you don't know where you stand in relationship to the Lord, the greatest gift that we could give you here at Village is to give you assurance that you're okay with God because He's good with you. But you have to get rid of that sin. You have to confess His authority over your life. So if you would like to do that, you can come up here to the prayer banner that's leaning against the wall in the wrong way. And uh, we will have somebody there. It says prayer on the other side. We'll have somebody there that, you, that will sit with you, a woman or a man, sit with you and walk you through the gospel story. We want you to make sure that when you leave this place today, you know where you stand with God. And the Bible says these things are written so that you may know that you have eternal life. So if that's you this morning, that's our greatest invitation. We're going to pass juice and bread Uh, Let that go by you and make that your priority because we want you to be able to declare for true where you stand with God. The bread and the juice represents the blood that was shed and the body that was given. And so the people around you are declaring that Jesus is Lord of their lives, that he is their way to the Father. And we want to make sure that everybody does the same thing with the same knowledge, declaring the same truth here this morning. We're going to give you a few moments and Maybe you're just sitting there and the Holy Spirit is just pulling at your heart. Take this moment, if you would, to just pray to the Lord. He hears you. (laughs) He is here. And so, if you would just take a moment, silently pray to the Lord, and maybe just thank Him for the fact that He never leaves us nor forsakes us. But if you've got a situation in your life where you know the Lord is trying to teach you a lesson, would you take this moment and just say, God, I know you're trying to get my attention. Forgive me for ignoring your obvious uh, pulls in my life. 
And help me to learn the lesson before it's too late. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you could even use this moment to say, God, if there's something, uh, something about my life that's not right with you, I've never accepted you as my Savior. I want to do that right now. You can even do it in your chair this morning. This is a God moment. So would you take a moment here this morning, just pray to the Lord in the silence, and then I'll come up and I'll close us with a word of prayer, and we'll take communion together.